Well, we're not going to be talking about anything that's really much more profound than what they just sung. Um, just digging into that a little bit more. But particularly the words there, uh, little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. And today we're, we're looking at God who is strong, our faithful God. Uh, I'll just invite you to pray with me and then we will dive into our text. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you that we can gather. Thank you for getting us all here. And Lord, now I pray that you'd help us to focus our minds. I pray that you would uh, help us to um, focus through distractions and, uh, and work hard at uh, listening and at, at understanding your word, most importantly. And I pray that you would help us to leave here encouraged as we consider our strong and faithful God, how, how you are faithful to your people. I pray that that would encourage us even now in Christ's name. Amen. The nation of Israel had miraculously been delivered from slavery in Egypt. They had seen the mighty deliverance of God in the uh, plagues that he brought on Egypt um, and they'd seen the deliverance out of Egypt. They were slaves and they left uh, with many goods. They plundered the Egyptians on their way out. They crossed the Red Sea on dry ground and watched God judge the nation of Egypt before their eyes. And yet, as they entered into wilderness, just a few weeks after the Passover, when the uh, final plague hit Egypt and they left, just a few weeks later, they became hungry. They were in the wilderness, they became hungry, and there was no food around. Now, there were upwards of 2 million people that left Egypt. 600,000 men, were told, besides women and children. So probably around 2 million people that left. And they're in a wilderness with no food. Um, this is not, you know, we, we can, in some ways, on a human level, I think, sympathize with the fact that that's a significant problem. There's no food in sight, and there's a couple million people. This is, a, this is not a small thing. But they turned to Moses and they said... Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Again, they had seen amazing deliverance and had feared and worshipped the Lord as a result of that, but now they've become hungry, they've become needy again they see no way of escape around this one and they felt betrayed they felt abandoned by god and by god's anointed leader moses and this sense of abandonment has been felt by god's people in various ways and various degrees throughout the ages david asked in psalm 22 1 why have you forsaken me we recognize those words from Jesus on the cross, but he's quoting David from Psalm 22. Why have you forsaken me, my God, my God? This question comes down to the character of God. Is God faithful or is he not? When things look bad, when times are hard, is God faithful or is he not? In the desert, Israel assumed that God had ill intentions to destroy them. Right? You've brought us out here to kill us with hunger. 
They assume he's not faithful. In Psalm 22, David concludes the psalm in hope and in worship because he believes the opposite, that in fact God is faithful even though the present circumstances look as though God has abandoned him and forsaken him. One place that Christians today can feel abandoned and hopeless is in our battle with sin. The longer we live and the more we do battle with the flesh and battle our, our sinfulness, we can become discouraged because sometimes the reality is sin dies a very slow death. And sometimes we find ourselves wrestling and struggling with sins that we never imagined we would have. And we remember former days when we walked in such victory, which seemed so victorious, and now we find ourselves in a hole and we're struggling and it's difficult and we feel betrayed somehow. This is supposed to get better. We're not supposed to walk through these difficult times and we might wonder if God has abandoned us and doubts creep in. Perhaps he's not good. Maybe this is a lie. Perhaps he's brought me this far to crush me. He's brought me to the wilderness. Now he's going to dump me here and leave me to rot. Studying and looking at God's laws, his rules, also his perfections, his perfect character, um, sometimes has this effect on us. Um, As we, even in scripture, every time God appears in some way to his people, you notice they hit the ground. Uh, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, is Isaiah's response. Anytime the holiness of God is near, there's fear and terror. In Exodus, they're at Mount Sinai. The people are terrified. They say, Moses, you talk to us, but not the Lord, lest we die. So there's this sense of awe of, of who God is because he's so holy and perfect and other than us. He's so different and so much greater. And when we see that and compare ourselves to that, we feel small and, and sometimes, frankly, we just feel awful. And when we read then his, his, his laws and commands, his do's, the don'ts, we can again feel depressed and downcast because we do the things we shouldn't do. We don't do the things we should do. And the section that we've been working through in 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5, these two chapters have had a lot of commands in them. We've been told a lot of things that we should do, including um, loving others, fleeing sexual immorality, um, living quietly, minding your own affairs, working with your hands. Remember we talked about just faithfulness in ordinary things. Uh, We've been told um, to rejoice always. You know, flee. Uh, last week we talked about uh, abstain from every form of evil. We can feel the weight of these commands, these laws from God. But Paul ends this book, and he ends this section where he's giving marching orders for the church on an incredibly encouraging note. He leaves us with a remarkable statement on the faithfulness of God, on God's faithfulness. And so as this book comes to a close, uh, he would have us turn our eyes upward to the faithful God. In the midst of our failures and struggles, we are to look to him. 
And so today, as we are going to wrap up uh, 1 Thessalonians, don't worry, we'll go to 2 Thessalonians next week in case you were worried. Uh, But as we wrap up 1 Thessalonians this week, we're going to look at how a faithful church is trusting in the faithful God. A faithful church is trusting in the faithful God, ever looking to God who is faithful. And so here's the outline for today where we're going. The first is that God is faithful to complete his work of salvation. That's where we'll spend most of our time. And God is faithful to hear and to answer prayer. And number three, God has faithfully given us the church. So number one, God is faithful to complete his work. Read with me uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5, starting verse 23. We'll read 23 and 24. It's a bit of a benediction and a prayer. Paul says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul prays here that God will preserve the Thessalonians in holiness until the coming of Christ. And he includes with it a statement of absolute confidence that God will accomplish this. He who called you as faithful, you'll surely do it. And so let's just walk through this uh, and see a little more of what it is Paul is praying for, what he's asking for. He begins by, by calling God the God of peace. May the God of peace. Now this is more than simply a reference to the fact that God is a God of order. Um, certainly he is a God of order. Um, but this, in this case, I think it's synonymous with, the fact, uh, with salvation. So God is a God of peace in that when he saves, he makes peace with those who were formerly his enemies. So prior to being uh, saved and forgiven, we are God's enemies. When he calls us to himself and saves us and we are born again, we are now at peace with God. The enmity is gone. We are at peace and he is the God of peace. So Romans 5.1 says it this way, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul commonly calls God the God of peace in benedictions. Uh, The last words of Romans say, May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And there's other places as well, end of uh, 2 Corinthians and Hebrews as well. So he prays here that the God of peace will sanctify you completely. The word sanctify means to make holy or to set apart. Uh, And the word is used in a couple of ways in in scriptures, in a few ways. But this idea of of being sanctified, used in a couple of ways. The first is to speak of what is called positional sanctification. Positional sanctification. That is, in our standing or our position before God, Christians are sanctified or made holy once and for all upon conversion. So it's a past tense thing. So we are set apart as a holy people called out of darkness and into light. Uh, It's tied to our justification in which God declares us righteous before him based on receiving the merits of Christ by faith credited to our account. Uh, So one one, uh, author puts it this way, describes it like this. Justification is the declaration of righteousness that makes the sinner acceptable to God. Positional sanctification is the determination by God that the justified sinner is now set apart unto himself as one of his holy people. 
First Corinthians 6.11 uh, refers to this aspect of sanctification, says, And such were some of you, talking about sinners essentially, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So it's a, a past tense thing. Hebrews 10.10 also talks about being sanctified once for all as a, a past tense thing. These are referring to this positional sanctification. So we are a holy people to God. Okay, and that's where the word you, you, you read in Scripture when, when believers are called saints. It's the same root, it's the same root word as, uh, as sanctification. So when we're referring to other people as, as being saints, uh, they're sanctified ones, they're holy ones, declared so by God. A second aspect of sanctification, so you have positional sanctification on the one hand, is what is commonly called progressive sanctification. And this is probably what most often when we use this word, this is typically, I think, what we're referring to. At least usually when I talk about it, that's what I'm talk- this is what I'm talking about. But this idea of progressive sanctification uh, is the idea that those who are, are uh, saved by God, called out of the world by God to be His holy people, are in the process of becoming more holy in practice. So we are declared holy, but we're also still, we still sin. We still wrestle with our flesh. We still uh, struggle with our sinfulness. And so we're still in this process of being made more holy in our lives, in our practice. So, um, so again, God declares believers righteous upon conversion, justification, and views them as holy and set apart for him, positional sanctification, but believers are still battling indwelling sin and are still becoming more holy in practice. That would be progressive sanctification. And so this is what this idea of progressive sanctification is what we're called to when we see commands in scriptures, when we see imperatives like we've been reading in in these uh, last couple chapters of 1 Thessalonians. In fact, we saw this explicitly in chapter 4, verse 3, where Paul says, This is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So he's saying, the will of God for you is your progressive sanctification, abstain from sexual immorality. And this is the same idea of sanctification that Paul has in mind here, that he is praying for, that they would continue to become more holy to the end. So Paul goes on to pray that they'd be sanctified completely. He says completely, which I think he then expands on with the next words. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul says spirit, soul, and body, he's not laying out here um, three, the, the technical, he's not being technical. He's not talking about the technical parts of the human being, um, that there's body, soul, and spirit. Um, rather, he's simply expressing his desire that the Thessalonians in their entirety, their whole being, all that they are, would be sanctified, set apart, made holy for God. So some, there are some people who, who will, who, uh, orthodox people who will argue that the human beings, we are made up of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. They'll appeal to verses like this one especially to make that case. I don't think that's right. Um, I, I would argue that there is, uh, we, we can think of it as uh, two parts to us, one being material and one being immaterial. 
And that, that immaterial part of us is sometimes referred to as spirit, sometimes soul, sometimes you'll read heart, even mind, I think, all refers to that part of us that's not immaterial. But, but even then, the Bible's main focus is that we as people are, are, a, are one being, a whole person, a unified person. Our body and soul belong together. We're, we're one person. So we don't want to just arbitrarily split things up. And I don't think Paul is trying to do that here. His point is every part of you, all that you are inside and out, um, his desire is that that would be set aside and made holy unto God, increasingly so until the end. So he prays that they would be kept uh, blameless, he says. Let's just read this. Uh, the body and soul be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's asking that God would guard or protect them. That's what the word kept means, to guard them to the end. Protect them, watch them, keep them to the end. The end when Christ returns. So uh, his prayer is that they'd be standing. The day Christ comes back, that, that the Thessalonians would be standing before him blameless and unstained, having finished the race. So his prayer that God would see this process of sanctification through in them until the end, that they'd be found in that day blameless, that the work of sanctification, uh, which began at their conversion progressively, would be completed and they would be ultimately perfected. And then, of course, remarkably, he then expresses great confidence in God to make this happen. He says, he who called you is faithful, he will surely do it. He who called you is faithful, he will surely do it. So he prays for something and then says, God's going to do this. And he roots his confidence in the fact that God is faithful. This is a significant characteristic of who God is. He's faithful. The one who called them, that is, the one who elected them before the foundations of the earth, chose them, called them out in time to be his people, drew them to himself, that God, Paul's saying, we can be sure is faithful to complete his work and preserve his people until the end. Romans 8, 29. It says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, sanctification, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul, sometimes we hear this as the golden chain of redemption. That is, the same ones that God for new, he predestined, he calls, are the same ones that he will glorify at the end. And Paul even is so sure of it in Romans 8, he speaks of it in past tense, that he's already glorified us, because this is going to happen. This is uh, our faithful God at work. So God preserves those whom he calls. The Bible says that God is the one who saves. Uh, we are most certainly called to persevere, we're called to finish the race. We're, we are not called to be casual about sin. We are not called to be presumptuous. Oh, I'm saved, so I'll just do whatever I feel like doing. We're never ever called to those things. But ultimately, ultimately, our hope is that God keeps his people. 
that God is faithful to bring us safely to the end, whatever it is we face between now and then. This prayer, these verses we're reading, 23-24, there's a parallel um, back in chapter 3. At the end of chapter 3, if you'll recall, verse 11 to 13, Paul there prays uh, as well. And one of the things he prays is that God would establish their hearts blameless in holiness. That's very similar to what he's just prayed here. And that comes at the end of, if you'll recall, uh, we've got to go back a few months, um, but if you'll recall, the first few chapters, the first three chapters of Thessalonians, there's nothing really in the way of commands. It's Paul uh, praying, praising the Lord, recounting the, the joy he has in the Thessalonians and a little bit of their history and why it was Timothy was sent to them and, and all these things. And then he concludes that part with this prayer, which among other things, he's praying that they would be preserved blameless in holiness to the end. And then he gets into chapters 4 and 5. There's some commands and instructions for the church to follow. And then he concludes that section again with a prayer that they would be kept blameless to the end and this declaration that God's going to do it. And so these prayers bookend this section on, uh, of commands to the people. Because again, these commands will crush us if we have to keep these things to be right with the Lord. They will absolutely crush you. And so he's encouraging them on either side of that. He's praying for faithfulness to the end, and he's praying for it at, at the end of the chapter as well, the end of the book, letter, and he's expressing confidence that God will do it. Why? Because the one who called you is faithful. He's a faithful God. And so again, the Christian life, it's not merely trying to keep commands on our own power, Right? Sanctification, progressive sanctification, the pursuit of holiness, it's not to be all on our own strength. Rather, it's God who calls and it's God who keeps. So our call to action, which we clearly have in chapters 4 and 5, calls to faithfulness, and God's sovereignty to bring this about are both emphasized in this book. But our ultimate hope is that God is faithful to complete His work in us. Our ultimate hope is not in our ability to be awesome. It is in God, the God who is faithful. Gene Green, who uh, wrote a commentary on 1st and 2nd Thessalonians that I've uh, used quite a bit in studying for these sermons, he writes this. He says, Their firm hope, that is the Thessalonians, is that God will keep them blameless so that they can stand before him without shame or guilt. The work of salvation planned in their election and effected in their calling and conversion will be brought to completion at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. A couple other places where we find this in Scripture. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 4-9. I give thanks to my God always for you, so at the start of his letter to the Corinthians, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
And that's remarkable because the first, the Corinthians had issues. And yet God is confident that he's going to see his people through. Philippians 1, 6, And I am sure of this, Paul writes, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And then if you were, if you were here on Wednesday as we flew through Exodus, uh, you might remember um, from Exodus 34, 5 to 7, uh, there um, the Lord reveals himself more fully to Moses. He reveals his name. He says he's going to proclaim his name to, to Moses. And this is what it says. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and and it goes on. But essential to who God is, to his character and his nature, is that he is faithful and he keeps steadfast love with his people. When he promises to do something, he does it. And even as we are reading through Genesis and Exodus, we're seeing these promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it's years. We read it through quickly, and we fly through it in an hour on Wednesday night, but there's years in between promises and fulfillment often. 400 years Israel was in Egypt. That's a long time. We read through it quickly, but that's a long time, I would submit to you. And so we are promised God will see us through to the end if we have been born again. And yet that can seem like a long time. But God is faithful. He keeps steadfast love for his people. And God's people have always looked to him to be faithful and called on him, the faithful God. Place their hope in his faithfulness. Consider Psalm 138, 7-8. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Throughout the Bible, confidence in God is rooted in the character of God. He is faithful and he abounds in steadfast love toward his people. This is good news for us. It's good news that God is faithful and that he finishes what he completes. But I also want to be clear about something. This good news is for those who've come to an end of themselves. It's good news for those who've felt the weight of their sin, who've been crushed by their sinfulness, and who understand they cannot possibly stand before God on their own. It's for those who've repented of their sin by confessing their sin to God and crying out for mercy and grace to the only true God who can possibly save. That's who God saves and keeps. If sin is a joke to you, or it's something you simply take lightly, or you refuse to confess or bring to the light, then you should not feel the comfort of these verses. God will surely judge the wicked. That is also part of his name. He shows steadfast love and faithfulness to his people, but he will not acquit the guilty. 
And this is why we need Jesus Christ, that we might be forgiven by Him, covered in His blood, that God might, in fact, let us guilty people go by punishing His Son instead. And so this comfort that God will keep us to the end is for those who say, that's my only hope. That's all I have. That's my only chance. That's my only shot. If you think you're going to make it on your own or you're good enough or your sin's not a big deal, these promises are not yours. But if you struggle, even if you are beaten down by your sin, and you again say, my only hope is that Christ died to save sinners like me, then these promises are for you. He shows steadfast love and faithfulness. We struggle with this. We struggle with sin. But this should be caused to make us cling all the more to our Savior. All the more to our God who is faithful to save. So may this truth find a place in the deepest recess of your soul. And may it encourage you on those dark days and dark nights where you struggle yet again with sin or where everything else around you seems to be falling apart, that God is faithful to complete the work that He begins. Remember your great high priest, we sang about it, who's there before the throne of God above, whoever lives to intercede for His sheep, His people. Look to Christ who said this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That's John 10. And so in that, we are in the Son's hand, and we're in the Father's hand. That's a lot of security. Is the Father's arm too short to save? Surely not. The God who made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and fulfilled them, who brought Israel out of Egypt, as he said, will finish the work of salvation that he has begun in his people. And so when you struggle hard with sin, when you're crushed again by its weight, when once again you don't measure up and you feel your unworthiness, confess that to him. Acknowledge that to him. Acknowledge your great neediness for him to keep you, lest you fall away and perish. And rejoice, because that's why Jesus came. This is not a surprise to him uh, that you fell short again. Jesus died for that sin. And so confess that. Be confident in the work of your Savior. We, We need not live in despair when we confess our sins to Christ. We ought to feel the weight of that, but we can have joy knowing that Christ died for that, for that sin. So Paul intentionally has this here at the end for our encouragement and to give us a boost even as we wrestle through our days and struggle in our pursuit of holiness. God is faithful. He will see you through. He will surely do it. He will bring us home safely. Number two, God.
God is faithful to hear and answer prayer. Uh, Verse 25, brothers, pray for us. And so as Paul's wrapping up the letter here, he asks them to pray for him. Sometimes people wonder if God is sovereign. You know, if he knows all and he rules by divine decree and he's going to have his way in the end, then why bother praying, for example? But don't you see, it's precisely because God is sovereign that we come to him and we pray. He is able to act. He does hear. He does answer prayers. He delights to do that. And he's capable of intervening at any moment. And so we bring our requests to the God who is sovereign over the entire universe. That's the God that we pray to. Paul himself, as we just read, prayed for their sanctification. There was, he prayed that they'd be sanctified, and then he says God's going to do it. So again, even knowing God's going to preserve his people to the end, he's still praying that that is in fact the case. And of course, he asks for prayer for himself. So prayer is a, a means by which God helps and sustains his people. As we pray for one another, God answers prayers and he helps us along. And so again, even the Apostle Paul, who is the man, basically, even he wanted prayer from these very average, ordinary you know, Christians who we don't really know a whole lot more about other than what we can find in these letters. People whose names are lost to history, Paul's asking for their prayers because he knows his need for God's help. He doesn't say exactly what he wants prayer for. It's just a generic uh, request for prayer. Um, so it's, it's possible, uh, it's probable that, his minist- that he desires them to pray that his ministry would be fruitful, that the gospel would go forth victoriously, that he'd be sustained and kept to the end just as he prayed for them, etc. So the faithful God tells us to pray, and he's a faithful God who hears prayer and answers prayer. Again, when Israel was oppressed in Egypt, uh, at the end of chapter 2 of Exodus, uh, we're told this, Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He heard their cries. He knew what they were going with, and now it was time to act. In Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, we are reminded of our faithful high priest, Jesus Christ, who intercedes for us. Again, we sang about this, but we're told in Hebrews 4, 14, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The fact is, Christians are people of prayer. Charles Spurgeon called prayer the autograph of the Holy Spirit upon a renewed heart which is really a fancy way of saying uh, it's what Christians do. (laughs) If you're a Christian, you will pray. 
That's a sign you are, in fact, a Christian. You have faith in God and you are praying to Him. You are asking Him. And so we ought to prevail in prayer. It ought to be our regular business, corporately, privately, in our homes, with our families, by ourselves. We have great needs every day. We have need of faithfulness in all things, need of perseverance, further sanctification. We have sins that we need to repent of and, and get forgiveness for. We have there are sins of other people against us that we need to forgive. There's all kinds of things that we can be praying for. And these are all things that the Father provides answers for. So prayer expresses our neediness for God and our confidence that He provides what we need. It's a way of communing with Him, communicating with Him as we bring our prayers and our supplications before Him. So I just will ask, what is your prayer practice now? I exhort us to make time for prayer. Get up early if that's what it takes. Stay up late if that's better. Pray with your kids. Pray with your spouse. Pray, pray, pray. Learn to pray. If it's difficult or challenging, learn to pray. There's resources we can help you with. Um, but you can use what you read in your Bible to, to know what to pray for. We see things that Paul's praying for here. You can pray those things for yourself, for your family, for other people in this room, for anyone you think of. The Psalms are great for teaching us how to bring our prayers before the Lord. There's prayers of anguish. Uh, there's praise. There's all kinds of stuff in the Psalms. They're wonderful for that. If you read about loving your neighbor, then you can pray for your neighbors. You can pray that your family might be faithful in that area. You can pray that the church would be faithful in that way. You can pray that your kids or grandkids or other kids around you would grow up to be those who are concerned about the welfare of others, their physical and spiritual needs. And with that, too, just uh, we mentioned earlier that this Wednesday will be a prayer night, and so we'll take a break. Um, we're going we're gonna to do that regularly as we go through the Bible. It's a chance to kind of catch our breath. Um, but also, it's just a chance that we, I mean, we need to be people who are praying, and we need to pray together. And so we want to make sure we keep that going. So at least probably once a month, we'll be just spending time in prayer together. And I'd encourage you to, to be there and to be thinking in advance of things that we can be praying about together. And so again, God has given us prayer. He allows us and tells us to come confidently before him, the faithful God. We get to, that's the one we get to bring our request to. So let us be faithful to pray. God has also faithfully, that's number three, given us the church Verse 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So Paul tells them to greet the others with a holy kiss. This verse, of course, has been the brunt of many very lame jokes and very lame Christian pickup lines. Um, but what this was, was it was a kiss on the cheek or on the forehead between family members or close friends or those who have mutual respect. And, and there are cultures today that still do this. You might know some or have seen this. But, um, so it's, it's, it's like a warm greeting. Again, uh, Jean Green says it's affirmation of their filial unity 
as brothers and sisters in the common faith. So it was, it was holy, a holy kiss, and that it was an expression of their unity as saints, as holy ones in the church. It was a warm greeting that showed their brotherly and sisterly love for one another. And it was an, one that was appropriate, uh, appropriate in that culture and context. This was something that was good and right for them to do. And so it was an encouragement towards warmth of friendship and brotherhood and love for one another. It's another way of essentially saying that. Be loving to one another. Be warm to one another. And so, again, that was a a context where the holy kiss was an appropriate way of doing that. Um, Today, that's very odd and foreign in our culture. But what's underneath that, the idea of treating each other like brothers and sisters and loving each other and greeting each other warmly and being glad to see each other, this is this this stands. This is something that churches uh, should do uh, because God has given us one another, which is a tremendous gift and a tremendous blessing. We are family. He also uh, then puts them in verse 27, puts them under oath to have the, the, the letter read to everybody. And so that even presumes a gathering. They're going to get together so that this letter can be read to everybody who's part of this church. And so it's reading this letter together and obeying it together, following it together, believing the truth that's in there together. So there's nothing in here that wasn't for everyone. Everything that's in this letter, have it read to the entire church. Gather together, read it, learn it, obey it. And so they're to, to love one another as family and read and obey apostolic teaching together as family, as fellow believers. And so God has graciously given us fellow pilgrims to go on this journey with through life to the end. Paul didn't go it alone, right? Even he has need for these Christians to pray for him. Paul doesn't go it alone, and of course, we should not either. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, if you haven't read it, you should. Um, it's very good. But there's two books, really, that are part of it. And this, the second book, the first book is about a man named Christian and his journey to the celestial city. So it's, a, it's an allegory for the Christian life. The second book is then uh, his wife's journey. So in the first book, his wife doesn't want to go. So she stays behind. In the second, though, his wife and children uh, now believe and they want to go. They want to go to the celestial city. And um, in, that, in that story, in the second book, um, there's a lot more focus on uh, the, the team effort. Uh, there's a lot more people going on this journey, and it shows how different the, the individuals are, but how they need one another, and how they journey together uh, toward the celestial city, and how they help each other out along the way. And so you have sort of uh, somewhat heroic characters, if you will, Mr. Greatheart, uh, Valiant for Truth, another guy's name. I would take that one. Uh, But you also have characters in there like Little Faith, who's a believer, and Mr. Fearing, who together, all together, journeyed towards the end, the celestial city. And even, they even learn from men like Mr. Fearing, who was very much afraid a lot of the time, but a lot of it was he was afraid of missing out. And he was very tender to sin, much more so than some of these other more heroic types. And so even just, the book is just great in showing how the church is needed and necessary to help one another out to get 
to the end. So we are a family. We are to greet one another warmly and learn to view each other and treat one another like brothers and sisters. We can and should pray for each other and encourage each other along the way. So the church is a great kindness that God has given to his people. You have a family to walk through this life with. To travel with toward the celestial city. Those who can help you, who can help sustain you and prop you up when you're weak, who can pray for you and encourage you when you are struggling, who can remind you of the great truths that you need to hear, truths like we're reading now, that God is faithful, He will preserve you. We need these reminders. Faithful friends, brothers and sisters, who can lovingly and kindly rebuke you if you start to stray, wander toward error. And so I would encourage you to not deprive yourself of the great blessing of being part of God's church, but to swing that door open, so to speak, and dive in. We need one another. And I would also ask us to not deprive our brothers and sisters of the gifts that you bring. You may not feel like you have a lot to offer, but even as Mr. Fearing in Pilgrim's Progress taught a lot to the others around him, we all have a role to play in this. And, and we need one another, and others need you. And so I encourage us all to dig in, to dive in, to open up, to um, be here often, to call one another. And I know these things are happening, and it's amazing. And it's great when it does happen. And so I encourage us to continue to do this even more and more. And so God is faithful. As we wander and as we make our way to the end and as we anticipate the return of Christ, his coming, and as we desire to stand before him at the end blameless, our God is faithful. He, he will do it. He will do it. And he's given us each other to help, to pray for one another, to struggle along together. And he's a faithful God who hears and who answers prayer And so as you come to the place, if, you come, if and when you come to the place where you feel abandoned or where you feel so low because you've sinned yet again, I encourage you to lift your eyes up to God who is faithful, to again make it your confession that your only hope is Jesus Christ and Him crucified and that He saves sinful people like yourself. And hold on to the reality that God is faithful. That he who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, for your word. And I'm thankful for these people that are here. And for God, there's so many trials that people here have been through. Though we are not a large group, uh, there's been a lot of pain and difficulty over even just the last few months or years. And God, yet here we are, and you have shown yourself faithful. And so we give you praise. Help us, God, to whatever low point we ever reach, whether it's right now or whether it's in days to come, 
May we look up and remember our God who is faithful. May we turn to your scriptures that give a testimony of your faithfulness to your people. And may we call out to you who hears and answers prayers. And may we root ourselves in the truth that you are a faithful God. I pray that we would all feel the weight of our sin, but that that would drive us to deny ourselves and to place all of our hope and trust in Jesus Christ and none in our own. I pray that you would not allow any of us to play games with you, but to be straight honest before you. God, we just pray that you would uh, bless our church and our time together. I pray that we would um, be those who press in to one another, who, who uh, make ourselves available to one another, and who pilgrim together. And I pray that you would uh, just sustain us even this day. And God, we just give you praise for your goodness and for being faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.